You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 53, Alcohol. Today on Minding the Brain, we're going to talk about one of the most used drugs in the world, alcohol. It is difficult to state exactly how many people drink alcohol globally, or even how much alcohol is consumed, but in North America, approximately two-thirds of individuals aged 15 or older drank alcohol in the past year. That's an estimate there. So, But that's still a staggering statistic when you compare alcohol to, say, cannabis use, which is only estimated to be used by about 18% of the population. But today we're going to talk a bit about alcohol and their use trends and focus on Kim's favorite part, how alcohol acts on the brain. So, Kim, first question, let's talk chemistry. Now, there's different forms of alcohol. So, what kind of alcohol are we discussing today? That's right, Jim. Drinking alcohol, or otherwise known as ethanol or ethyl alcohol, uh, is the one that we're going to focus on today. Other alcohols are toxic. We don't drink them. So examples are methyl alcohol or methanol or even isopropyl alcohol, which some of our listeners may know of as a common disinfectant. But today, if you, if you drink those, yeah. you won't be able to drive. No, no, you you will die. <laughs> uh, and so today we're obviously going to discuss ethanol. Uh, so, but just for the purposes of ease, we're just going to refer to it as alcohol. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners have consumed alcohol at some point in their lifetime, but they may not be familiar with how alcohol is produced. So, can you give us a brief rundown? Sure, sure. Um, the main ingredient necessary is something that contains sugar, such as a fruit, and a common one that we all think about is grapes, right, to make wine, or uh, in some cases, a, a grain product, such as barley or rye, which would be used to make things like a beer. Uh, and the sugar is typically dissolved in water, it's exposed to air, and then what occurs naturally in air is that it is full of yeasts. And these, these are tiny living microorganisms that go in and eat the sugar, and they ferment the fruit or the grain. So if you've you know ever encountered fruit that's kind of gone rotten, it's fermented, it's kind of fizzy, and that fizziness is exactly what's happening. It's the production of um, carbon dioxide, uh, one of the byproducts of how yeast invades these sugars. And the other byproduct is, lo and behold, ethanol. Uh, so the carbon dioxide bubbles up and escapes. And in the process of manufacturing alcohols, we conserve the alcohol and uh, bottle it up. And that's, that's fairly easy to do at home, right? Sort of. You you need the right equipment, but yes, there's a, certainly a lot of home brewers out there, and typically this is beer or cider. It's a little harder to do the uh, wine at home just because you need a rather large quantity. Um, and in fact, my brother-in-law, hey Brent, uh, is currently making his own si cider, and I've had it. It's pretty good. And speaking of your brother-in-law, can you give us more statistics on who's using alcohol more than your brother-in-law? <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah, uh, absolutely. And what I'll do is I'll stick to Canadian statistics simply because those are the ones I know fairly well. Okay. Uh, for our international listeners, I, I know we have listeners all over the world now, it's worth noting uh, that uh, countries like Canada, the U.S., uh, Australia, and several countries in Europe are some of the highest drinking nations worldwide, mm. whereas countries in Africa and in the Middle East uh, drink the least. Um, and you can probably guess it's likely for religious or and or cultural reasons. But yeah, so back to some stats. Um, one of the, the organizations that I typically 
uh, use or go to for my current statistics, either Stats Canada or uh, the organization, the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, or CCSA. And the CCSA releases uh, some general use statistics uh, fairly regularly. So here are some more recent highlights about alcohol use. And uh, you kind of hinted at it in the intro, Jim. Alcohol is by far one of the most commonly used addictive substances. So I want to emphasize lots of different drugs out there. Alcohol is a psychoactive drug, meaning it affects our brain. But there's other psychoactive drugs that aren't addictive, things like antidepressants. But so we're talking about psychoactive addictive drugs uh, today, of which alcohol falls into that class. And so it is by far um, the most common addictive substance used by Canadians. Uh, And I'm not talking about caffeine here. Uh, We'll have a whole episode on caffeine, but caffeine I don't believe is addictive. It's habit forming, but it's not addictive. But yes, caffeine is is one of the most um, commonly used drugs worldwide. But anyway, back to alcohol. Uh, So it's commonly used and uh, its use is generally stable, but what we're seeing kind of a little bit worrisome, the trend is we're seeing increased uh, use among females uh, since 2013 for diverse reasons. Digging in a little bit more in terms of demographics, approximately 15% of Canadians who drink alcohol consume above what's called Canada's low-risk alcohol drinking guidelines. And and we'll get into that a little later on. Um, Risky alcohol use is quite prevalent among young adults, so individuals aged 18 to 24. And that's remained steady over recent years. We're not seeing any changes there. When we think about harms associated with alcohol, um, back to 2014, that's when we have these these data available to us, alcohol contributed to about 14,000, a little less, actually a little less than 15,000 deaths in Canada. And this represents 22% of all substance use attributable deaths. Now there's about 300,000 deaths in Canada every year. And that means alcohol was involved with one, almost one in every 20 deaths. Wow. And my experience with young people is that alcohol is generally celebrated like oh yeah it's like it's not posed as a worrying thing at all it's like let's get hammered Uh, (laughs) those are really concerning statistics and jim you would know more about that from well given that you're an american and uh not to divert too much here from the main point but there's a lot of different uh, attitudes around binge drinking in americans versus canadians in part because the drinking age in in the u.s is is so much it's that much higher right so it's 21 uh, versus in canada it's 18 or 19 depending on your province and that really affects the way in which young teens and young adults uh have perceptions of risk associated with use. And we do see um, these sort of that attitude around like, yeah, let's go get hammered and um, getting really wasted. uh, And when you turn legal age. So there's reduced alcohol. Do you think that Americans drink less alcohol when they're young because of the drinking age? No, they, they drink. There's some evidence that they're binge drinking more when they're reaching legal age. Because they've oh, okay. they've had to wait that much longer, and it, it becomes just a huge thing. Yeah, those are those are those are concerning. Yeah, alcohol can be pretty harmful, and we'll talk about that a bit later. But I did want to touch on uh, I mentioned I mentioned the low risk drinking guidelines. Okay, what are those? 
So the Canadian government puts out these guidelines to reduce long-term health risks specifically. They recommend no more than 10 drinks a week for women with no more than two drinks a day on most days. They also recommend for men no more than 15 drinks per week uh, with no more than three drinks a day most days. And then the final recommendation is not drinking on some days each week, right? So taking a break from drinking. And these, if you follow these low-risk guidelines. The idea is that you're putting yourself less at risk for alcohol-related harms. Yeah, you know, that that sounds reasonable. And I like that there's a some days a week you don't drink. You know, I think, you know, as we talked about in our habit episode, if you make drinking a habit like a daily thing, then you're going to be just by habit over drinking, right? And then and we see 15% of Canadians exceed the guidelines that are recommended. Exactly. And, and that's, that's pretty, pretty worrying. I did want to make a note. I'm not sure if you noticed the gender difference there. Uh, of course, recognizing gender is not in a binary, but um, again, the science and policy lag far behind our sociological understanding of gender. But the reason which women are recommended less than men is simply due to our difference, our different physiology. Even if you and I, Jim, we, we took uh, equal measures of drink, right? So if I had one beer and you had a beer and I had another beer and say we weighed the same amount, my blood alcohol concentration would still be higher than yours. Really? Yes, regardless of the fact that we drank the same amount and we weigh the same amount. And that's due to the fact that women have a higher fat to muscle ratio, whereas it's the opposite for men. They have more muscle than fat. And as such, uh, alcohol remains in our bloodstream for a lot longer relative uh, to men. And that's why it's it. You know, it's recommended that we drink less just by nature of the fact that physiologically we are quite different. Anyway. Wow. So there's a big, pretty big chunk of the population who do use alcohol heavily, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But first, science. Science! Brain science! <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about how alcohol affects our body and, of course, the brain. Yes, I wouldn't dream of having <laughs> one of our episodes without. Uh, yeah. So how does how does alcohol enter the body? Well, usually it's through a device such as a beer stein or a shot glass. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no, seriously. Okay, so the process by <laughs> which... <laughs> I know. Uh, the process by which a substance interacts with the body is known as, ready for a big word, pharmacokinetics. And more specifically, the processes of drug absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. Okay, that's a lot. That's that's a lot of big words. Yeah, sorry, sorry. So let me break this down a little further. Uh, if a drug is to have an effect on the body, it must be absorbed somehow, right? So we can't just put our hands on alcohol. I mean. It, a little bit is going to get into our skin, but it's a really ineffective way of getting something uh, into our bloodstream. So a drug absorption simply is the way in which it gets into our bloodstream. And there's ways that are better absorbed versus less uh, well absorbed. But it depends to some extent on drug administration or how a drug is taken. So obviously alcohol is consumed by drinking and you can contrast that with other addictive drugs that might be smoked, inhaled, ingested or injected, for example. So very obviously we drink alcohol, it's then absorbed rapidly from our gastrointestinal system, right? So about 20% is absorbed by our stomach and about 80% is absorbed by our small intestines. And then of course it then is diverted to the bloodstream. So this is a question. I'm genuinely a noob here because I've never been drunk. Uh, but do you drink? Do you do you drink alcohol and feel the effects right away? 
So as somebody who has been drunk, um, <laughs> <laughs> full a, disclosure, I had a rather Kim has been drunk. Everybody, <laughs> she admits it. I had a rather misspent youth. Um, not <laughs> obviously it wasn't misspent, but anyway, I, I did experiment with alcohol uh, quite a bit in when I was young. But anyway, you don't right away feel drunk, no, and it and it depends on a number of things including the proportion of a drug that is absorbed, right? So not all drug that is consumed or ingested is actually what's quote, called bioavailable, right? So part mm, of part okay. of that depends on the absorption. And so when you back to like when we ingest drugs, so either drink them or take a pill, it's going to depend on um, what's, what's going on with our stomach, right? So absorption from the stomach is affected by both the volume and concentration of the dose in the drug, right? So how much alcohol there is, right? If you do a shot versus a mixed drink versus a glass of beer. Right, right. So so like we think of beer as alcohol, but but technically speaking, only a part of beer is alcohol. And if you have Correct. whiskey, a higher part of that drink Correct. is alcohol. That's right. So yeah, the okay. the concentration per volume is different. Right, right, so right. beer has like, on average, 5% concentration of alcohol. Now, I will note to my American uh, um, yes, peeps right. out there that <laughs> when I moved to Canada, Canadians, Canadians never get tired of uh, claiming superiority because their beer has more alcohol in it. <laughs> Yes, yes, yeah, uh, and and it is a, a much shock to Canadians to go to the U.S. and drink a beer, and they're like, "What is this?" Right? It's like two percent. They're like sessionals, yeah. but yeah. So how much you're drinking, the dose makes a difference, but also the presence of food in your stomach. So very obviously, the more food that's in your stomach, that's going to slow. Absorption, and in fact, that's that's what we would recommend to individuals who might be going out um, for an evening. It's a good idea to have some food in your stomach before you start drinking, rather than drinking on an empty stomach. Which, yes, will get you drunk faster. And certainly, there are people who that's their intent. But it also right. is is really really hard on your stomach, right? And that's because alcohol is an irritant. It increases the flow of hydrochloric acid and pepsin in your gut. And spoiler alert, that's why you get nauseous. That's why some people who've drank too much vomit or they vomit uh, with a hangover. It's because it's just causing all these acids to churn away in your gut, uh, which can be, feel pretty horrible. So the other important point I want to make is the time from last drink to maximal absorption in the blood is about 30 to 90 minutes. So that means you're going to feel the effects of alcohol after about, on average, about a half an hour after you start drinking. Again, depending on a number of factors, including how much food is in your stomach, and then things like genetics, tolerance, et cetera, et cetera. The mental model I sort of have in my mind is that a person eats big bowl of rice before they drink, and then does does the rice just slow the alcohol mm -hmm. absorption or does it actually prevent any of it? Like, does any of it like just get in the rice and not get through or does it eventually all get into your system? You know, it slows it down. It doesn't. OK. It, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Slows so you're it still down. You're still getting the same amount of alcohol. Just it just like spreads it out over time better. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. OK. All right. So we have the alcohol absorbed into your bloodstream. But bloodstream isn't the brain, right? So there's is there an <laughs> extra step for it to get into the brain? Correct. So what happens is it gets into the bloodstream and then it has to it travels up into the brain. And we know alcohol very very readily uh, and freely crosses the blood brain barrier. 
Ah, the blood brain barrier. That's the the brain's protective helmet. <laughs> Not quite. Uh, <laughs> yes, some people have this image of like this little helmet on top of the brain, but no. So a little bit about the blood-brain barrier or the BBB. Um, it's a, it is a protective measure, but it's due to the fact that there's cells that line the walls of our arteries, right? So these specialized blood vessels um, that get, you know, they're all over our body. Outside of the brain, the cells that line the walls of these, uh, the arteries, they have a, a, a bit of a gap between them. So you can imagine that these um, large gaps allow fairly large non-fat soluble compounds to pass freely from the blood to other organs. And that's really important and necessary, right? That's how we get nutrients in our system. So when we eat things, everything is extracted and then passed uh, into our bloodstream and goes to, to nourish all our organs. But the brain is a little special. It has to be because it needs to be protected. Imagine if you ate something that was poisonous, you would need to be able to vomit so to get rid of that poison, right? So there's there's specialized ways in which uh, it a protects the brain and then also allows the individual to do something against being poisoned, such as vomiting. So the cells that line the walls of the arteries that feed the brain have are, are very tightly bound, right? So there's these tight gaps between them. Uh, these so-called epithelial cells have small gaps between them. And what that means is that only very tiny or very fat-soluble substances can pass between the blood, these blood vessels, and then up in, into the brain. So it allows things like oxygen uh, into the brain, but prevents large things like proteins, uh, unless they have other pieces of cellular equipment attached to it. We're not going to get into that super complex, but it, it basically prevents these large things from getting in. But highly fat soluble compounds like alcohol can pass easily through the, the walls of the bloodstream into the brain. Okay, so alcohol gets rather easily into the brain and, and then presumably affects the brain cells. Yep, but we'll get to that in a bit because that's another process. Let's finish pharmacokinetics first. Okay, so I think we can, there's, uh, there are four parts that can be remembered with ADME. So we have absorption, distribution, and the M is metabolism. Well done, gold star. Oh, I feel I earned that one. I get an a, I get an A in your class. I'm sure I would. Oh, that's because I'm such a good teacher. Wink, wink. Did you just say wink, wink? <laughs> yes, because it's an audio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Saying wink is a pod moji. Oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> Smiley. Oh my god, <laughs> we're inventing a new language. Okay, so on to metabolism. It's a fancy word in biochemistry or pharmacology to describe how a compound is broken down. Usually it's through using these specialized proteins called enzymes that act like scissors and they cut up um, proteins into its consist constituent parts. Now, I'm not going to bore our listeners and go through the list of enzymes involved in alcohol de degradation and so oh, on. on. Yeah, People no. People want to hear the list. No, <laughs> not everyone is a biochemistry nerd like me. But yeah, so the metabolism of alcohol is rather complex. My students struggle with learning about it um, because it involves a series of steps and byproducts. But I will mention one of them, uh, one of the byproducts is something called acetaldehyde. Oh my God, you, pro you promised me no big words, Kim. Sorry, again, one more. I say this because there is a fun fact associated with it. Oh, good. a fun fact. Okay, so now our audience can wow people at cocktail parties with their acetaldehyde fun fact. Acetaldehyde. 
Yes. <laughs> it might it might not get you a lot of dates, but it will get you dates with the right people. <laughs> Minding the brain dating tips. We should we, that can be our yeah. special there. Okay, so what here. is this fun fact? Okay, so I don't know, you, Jim, you said you've never been drunk. I, I know I know you don't really consume alcohol, but you you've probably been around people who have consumed alcohol, right? Oh yes, they're insufferable. Yeah, uh, and I've oh. seen them. Uh, well, when they get when you're the only one not drunk, yeah, it is it, it's true. a lot less fun. So yes, I know. Agreed. I've seen them get yeah. red. Yes, <laughs> I've yeah. seen their faces get red. Yes, well that's it. So um, when people are drinking, and either this is they're drinking quickly or they're drinking a lot, if they are of certain ethnicity. So I want to point out that this is not a not necessarily across all different um, ethnicities or races, but some of us folks that are Caucasian, for example, or even Asian, you will see uh, faces getting really, really red, right? So that's what you're, you've noticed. And that is due to the buildup of acetaldehyde in the blood. And why that's happening is you're drinking faster than your body can produce the enzymes to metabolize it. I'm sure you've all heard the maximum uh, that you should be drinking if you're out um, and you're hoping you would like to drive is about a drink an hour, of course, depending on a host of other factors, but really you shouldn't be drinking a lot if you're out and driving anyway. But um, if you're drinking faster than one drink an hour, acetaldehyde will build up. And one of the effects of acetaldehyde is it causes vasodilation or dilation of those blood vessels, and particularly the small blood vessels um, that are in the face. So that's why you have a red face. Oh, that is that is a fun fact. That is approved fun. Yeah, and relevant to bring up at cocktail parties. Although <laughs> right, I, yeah. moving, I see you. I see that acetaldehyde. Anyway. <laughs> So moving on, uh, the alcohol doesn't stay in your body forever, right? So let's talk about the elimination part of that's, this process. That's right. So I don't know, Jim, have you ever been to the gym? <laughs> Jim, do you go to the gym? That's a joke. Sorry. I just realized Jim and Jim. <laughs> Sorry, that's bad. Jim, have you ever been to the gym? I've never heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, have you been to the gym early in the morning, been working out next to someone who like reeks of alcohol? Like you can smell it emanating from their skin or... No, that would require me actually working out at the gym <laughs> early in the morning. So no, I have never experienced Okay, that. well, maybe it's just me. <laughs> anyway, the, the reason that happens is that person was very obviously drinking a lot the night before or maybe even well into early in the morning. And so when you're, particularly when your heart rate's up and you're working at the gym, what's happening is you're, you're pumping out all the metabolized alcohol byproducts. And while the liver... Our good old liver, uh, uh, star organ in terms of being involved in metabolism and elimination. It metabolizes about 95% of alcohol, but about 5% uh, of alcohol is excreted unchanged from the lungs. Unchanged means it's not actually um, metabolized. And this is the basis of the breathalyzer test. So you can do fancy math and derive how much alcohol is in the blood depending on how much you're exhaling. And for those number nerds out there, it's about a 1 to 2300 concentration of air uh, to venous blood. That's neat. I did not know that. Um, Well, that's why we're here. Are you ready for some more fun science? That, now, that's it's what I live for mm-hmm. on science. All right. So, pharmacokinetics, we talked about. ADME, absorption, distribution, metabolism, elimination. Let's move on to pharmacodynamics. Pharma, pharma, pharma what now? More big words. <laughs> Let's keep it to no more than one six-syllable word introduced per minute. I cannot promise this. 
<laughs> okay. No. All right, everybody. This is this is a legit science mm-hmm. podcast, and mm-hmm. science sometimes has big words, so mm-hmm. we're all just going to have to deal with it. Okay, Kim. So, what is pharmaco? Whatever it is. So pharmacokinetics, that's what I talked about earlier, is the study of how the body interacts with the drug. Pharmacodynamics is how the drug interacts with the body, or said another way, it's the so-called mechanism of action. How a drug, in this case alcohol, interacts with our organ of interest, we're talking about the brain, so how alcohol interacts with neurons to change their firing. Okay, I gotcha. So tell us, so how does alcohol influence neuron firing? We don't know. What? Check, please. <laughs> We're done. We're done. Signing out. Minding the brain. No. Yeah, so alcohol, here's your other fun fact for the cocktail party, right? Here's your next. It's going to get you great dates. Alcohol is the one addictive substance scientists are not sure how it acts has action in the brain. So we know about cannabis. Mm. We know about nicotine. We know about cocaine. We do not know about alcohol. We know it affects virtually every cell type and circuit in the brain, but we don't know its exact mechanism of action. Yeah, it seems like a very basic question, though. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, so what are, what are we going to talk about then? Well, not to worry, because there is a lot of science. You can imagine there's a lot of scientists that study alcohol and trying to understand how it works in the brain. So we do have a lot of things that we can discuss. Um, we know how alcohol interferes with brain physiology and chemistry, but again, we just don't exactly know how. Okay, I was worried there for a second. Jim, I never let you down. Brain science forever. Okay, so let's start with what we know about how alcohol affects us. Uh, And that's always a clue for scientists, right? If we're trying to understand how a drug acts uh, in the brain or in the body, our clues come from what does it do to us? How does it change us, right? And while each drug is unique in a sense... um, Every drug has a unique mechanism of action or impacts the brain differently. We do know all addictive substances lead us to feel high or intoxicated, right? Like that's the the common hmm. thing, right? So we take addictive substances because they, they give us pleasure. But that said, each of them do so in, in very unique ways or have you know, upstream effects that are quite different. And that's because of their individual targets or how they interact with uh, the cells. Okay, so I'm going to go through my layman's list of what alcohol does to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes other people look better. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so <laughs> there's <laughs> locomotor activity. So your reaction time is slower, right? So you're a, you're a worse basketball player. Mm-hmm. Uh, your memory can be affected because people can get blackouts or forget what they just said. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I, I think there's... Um, work on the nuance of decision making, but I think people are a little bit more impulsive, right? Yep. And um, and also, I think it reduces anxiety. So people often, I guess, they say, self medicate for if they're anxious or worried. Alcohol sort of gives them a break from that. Um, so, do these experiential and behavioral effects of alcohol give us clues to what's happening in the brain? Absolutely. So let's take two of those that you listed. I think you said. Uh, slowing reaction time, right, Mm. and anxiety. So those are somewhat related. So let's think to our basic neuroscience. In the brain, there is a specific neurotransmitter or neurochemical. It's called GABA. And GABA is the main inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. When GABA levels are high, it leads to lower anxiety. It can increase sleepiness, reduce locomotor activity, and so on and so forth. And when actually quite dangerously, if it's very high, it can suppress breathing, right? It basically 
decreases the activity of the central nervous system. Okay, I see where this is going. Right. So we know alcohol somehow interacts with GABA, right? To either, well, it probably increases it to some extent. It either causes neurons to fire more, releases more GABA presynaptically, or somehow there's an enhanced efficacy of GABA that binds to its receptor or has action postsynaptically somehow. We just don't know how it's doing that. For mm. years, scientists thought there was a binding site, which is typical for most psychoactive substances. Every drug is a protein and it has a specific shape and uh, our brain or body has physiological receptors that recognize that shape, right? So that's that's how cocaine, for example, works. It mimics the dopamine type 2 receptor. But ga uh, alcohol doesn't have a specific shape that matches some kind of a specific receptor that we know of yet. Um, somehow it interferes with GABAergic firing. We, we just don't know how. Okay, is that... Is that how it it can actually kill you? Is that why? Because of like it stops you breathing? Yeah, right. So if you drink too much alcohol at once or like your dose is too high, you're drinking too much over, over a short amount of time, you're not able to metabolize alcohol uh, very quickly. So what happens is that you've got a buildup of alcohol in your bloodstream, which is getting up into your brain and impacting GABAergic receptors. And you're, what ha basically, it's because your blood alcohol concentration is, is so high, right? It's rising so much that you effectively suppress brain function altogether. But acute or lower doses on the lower end of the spectrum, right, it, it leads to minor feelings, right? So less, less of an impact. So you can feel sort of relaxed, you get like mild mood elevation. And then as your BAC rises, decreased alertness, relaxed inhibitions, you have mildly impaired judgment. And as your BAC rises, you're getting more of this impact on um, your breathing. Eventually, you could you could go into a coma, and possibly death. Mm -hmm. All right, GABA. So uh, we explained most effects of alcohol, but what about the memory aspect of it, blackouts? So that's due to the impacts of alcohol on another neurotransmitter system, or the glutamate neurotransmitter okay. system. All right, well, glutamate, I guess, is only three syllables. So we're good? Yeah, we're good. We're okay. good. You're on thin ice, though, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> insyllable ice. Uh, oh my God. So, glutamate is the main, so GABA is inhibitory. Glutamate is the main excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. Okay. When glutamate fires, it leads to cell activation. And it's also involved in a process known as long term potentiation. So, that was three, that was a lot of syllables, but it was three different words. Okay. I just want to. Oh, God. <laughs> loopholes. Loopholes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, long term potentiation is thought to be the cellular mechanism that underlies the processes of learning and memory. So in short, glutamate and glutamatergic cell activity, and um, this is involved with associating things together and learning, right? So glutamate is kind of like the sticky glue of the brain. When we're really uh, learning things, glutamate levels are, are high and synaptic firing is, is happening. Okay. So Glutamate's involved with learning, and does that, is that why it has to do with blackouts? Well, blackouts are the loss of memory. So for those that have drank a lot of alcohol, <clears throat> myself, um, you, there are times when if you drink so much alcohol that you, are, you might be still behaving, you're talking, you're, you're walking, um, you're engaging with others, 
But the next day you wake up and you don't remember what happened. And this is actually a pr pretty worrisome. And I have to admit, looking back at some of my teenage drunken experiences, it's, it's pretty horrific because it can be, as you can imagine, uh, quite dangerous, right? So this loss of memory that's involved with um, drinking too much, which means typically. Right. That must mean like, okay, so your loss of memory is less glutamate. Yeah, exactly. So, well, yeah. So scientists think alcohol must be inf interfering somehow with the, the brain's ability to release or bind glutamate to its receptors. So the more alcohol you drink, the greater this effect. But incidentally, this is also the mechanism by which alcohol leads to increased seizure activity. Because when alcohol is cleared from the system, you suddenly have all this excess or rebound glutamate activity. And this is coupled with, remember we already were impacting GABA. So we have lowered GABAergic transmission because in rebound, elevated GABA is lowered GABA. And it means you have too much cell activity, not enough inhibition, and hence seizure activity. Oh, is that, okay, is that what leads to the delirium tremens? Correct, yeah. So DTs, delirium tremens, this is um, what can happen with uh, individuals who are regular chronic drinkers drinking a lot and uh, they are detoxing or they're, they're, they've decided to quit drinking alcohol um, and they, they can develop this severe alcohol use withdrawal syndrome and uh, is, is quite dangerous. Did you know alcohol withdrawal is lethal? No, I didn't know that. I mean, I, it, it's not, lack of alcohol has not been lethal for me. So um, right. I yeah, didn't know. Fair. Okay, I so, didn't know you could die from lack yeah, of alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Lack of alcohol if you are a regular alcohol drinker. And um, yeah, if, if folks drink a lot and daily, and then they, they do try to quit, quote unquote, cold turkey. So they're at home detoxing on their own and they're not being managed medically. It's quite serious and they can risk death due to seizure activity or this uh, delirium tremens. Is that part of the reason that, that the government declared liquor stores to be mm -hmm. um, during the yes. pandemic. What were they Essential called? Essential service. Yes. Thank you because, for raising that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because if alcohol uh, recovering, well, if alcoholics in mm -hmm. general are cut off immediately, they could suffer terrible health problems. Right. Correct. And I'm going to correct you. It's people who have an alcohol use disorder, not alcoholics. We try to use that term instead of alcoholics, which is stigmatizing. But yes, uh, right. people who are um, who have an alcohol use disorder or regular drinkers of alcohol, uh, it, it is absolutely a, a health risk. Are there drugs to manage that? When you think about how do you manage that, you want to somehow counteract this effect of alcohol not being on board anymore, and you want to somehow deal with the elevated glutamate and lowered GABA. So the best kind of drugs are those that, in fact, oppose these effects, but don't intoxicate the person as much as possible. So we use drugs that have similar actions in the brain. Uh, one category is benzodiazepines, which are drugs that are usually tr treating anxiety, or um, anticonvulsants, which are drugs to use epilepsy. And the benzodiazepines, they're used for anxiety, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So ben benzodiazepines are a class of substances that are are used meant to be used in the, to treat acute anxiety. They're not meant to be prescribed anymore. Uh, you're not meant to be taking them daily necessarily, unless things are really bad. But they they're 
use because they increase GABA. They have that anxiolytic, fancy word, sorry, me. Uh, they reduce anxiety. Um, but they also have a risk of misuse. Uh, they have some mild addictive potential. I shouldn't say mild. They do have an addictive potential. Um, so it needs to be overseen by a doctor. And that's why alcohol detox occurs. It's best to do it in, in a place that's overseen by physicians or nurses. Okay, so while we're on the topic of harms associated with alcohol use, let's go into a bit more detail about what those are. You've addressed the seriousness of alcohol withdrawal. Uh, what else should we know about? Well, according to the WHO, the harmful use of alcohol is a causal factor in more than 200 disease and injury conditions. And the most common one our listeners might know about is cirrhosis of the liver, or another one is related, fatty liver disease. And this is because alcohol use, drug use in general, but for varying reasons, I'm not going to get into alcohol and in, 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 to a great extent, is very stressful on the liver due to complex metabolics. So the liver is the main organ of detoxification. You're constantly stressing it by asking it to produce all these me um, metabolites or these enzymes, as well as oxidative stress. And it leads to a bunch of pathophysiological outcomes. Okay. And that's one of the leading causes of death due to alcohol use, right? Yeah. Heavy alcohol use is very much associated with higher mortality, you're more likely to die, and morbidity. You're more likely to have um, a course of life that's, that's uh, you're more likely to be ill, right? Another one is cancer, actually. Cancer? No. Yep. Alcohol causes cancer? Alcohol is a carcinogen. Not oh a lot of people goodness. know that. Yeah. Yeah. Any specific kind of cancers? Uh, well, I looked this up uh, because I, I'm just starting to read into this research. Shout out to Jaime Anisman, who's written a great book called Cancer, by the way, if, if any of our listeners are interested. But anyway, according to the Canadian Cancer Society, drinking alcohol raises your risk of developing head and neck, breast, stomach, pancreatic, liver, and colorectal cancers. Uh, that's grim. Yeah, long list, eh? So folks, please be mindful of your alcohol use. Okay, what else? Well, heavy alcohol use also puts you at risk for an alcohol use disorder, which I mentioned earlier. This is uh, what we would call a, an alcohol addiction. That's the alcohol use disorder is the proper term for this. And it's also associated with another a number of other mental health outcomes, including things like increased anxiety and depressive disorders. But this is complicated. You know, I'm in the addiction field. There's a lot of evidence that shows that um, having a use disorder or substance use disorder is often comorbid with another mental health outcome. So the question is, of course, did, did the mental health disorder lead to the substance use or did the substance use provoke or exacerbate or, you know, cause the mental health outcome? And the answer is it's a little bit of both, right? We do think that there's probably bi-directional. So having an anxiety disorder puts you at risk for, if you're using these substances, a cannabis use or an alcohol use disorder. But drinking alcohol regularly will also put you at risk for the development of an anxiety disorder. And that's because uh, we know alcohol is, it self-medicates anxiety, reduces mm, so it. So yeah. it could be like a, a circle, like a... Yeah. Yeah. A circle, a vision sure. circle there. Mm -hmm. So there's a, yeah, I think I, I think I knew something about that. There's a association between social anxiety and alcohol use. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. Highly comorbid. Right, right. That makes sense. Okay. So are we, are we done with the uh, harms for alcohol? Well, there's many others, but I do want to point out one more and one that's important to me personally. And because 
I studied this for several years as a postdoctoral fellow, but we have a whole other Minding the Brain episode on it, and that's the fetal alcohol spectrum disorders outcome. So, um, yeah. Right. So for our new listeners, you can go check out episode 14, Alcohol and the Developing Brain. Yes. So quick note, it's important for women of childbearing age to be aware that consuming alcohol while pregnant impacts the developing fetus and can lead to a range of um, significant postnatal outcomes. And that's because alcohol, it very readily cross, crosses the placental barrier. So it gets mm. into the nervous system of the developing fetus and not only impacts the developing brain, but also has a whole other range of neurodevelopmental outcomes or developmental outcomes, I should say. And I also want to mention no amount is safe, right? So some say, oh, I can have a drink here, there, but we don't know like the nutritional status of the developing mother, any genetics, uh, previous history. There's so many other factors that influence risk. So uh, the general line is there's no safe amount. A woman should just very simply not be drinking while pregnant. All right. Well, we've discussed plenty of harms. Um, I'm not any keener to drink alcohol now that I've been (laughs) involved in this. Um, But is there anything good associated with alcohol? Like I know I've heard some kind of research suggesting that moderate drinking can actually be good for your health. Um, Is there any is there any evidence for that? Well, you know, it's tricky. I've heard of this, too. Um, I've heard it's it's also highly contentious research. She mentions often sponsored by the wine industry, but you oh know, there's some evidence. There is some evidence that's impartial, but to suggest that alcohol can be good for your heart, in particular red wine, which contains compounds called polyphenols, which have an antioxidant impact, as well as uh, these compounds called resveratrol, which are anti-aging compounds found in the skin of the grapes. And so I did dig in and and doing a bit of research uh, for today's episode, I went back to see what the current evidence suggests because I haven't been following it as much recently. There was a recent meta-analysis, which is a a type of research that's done where they collect a whole bunch of research papers and run fancy statistics to see what are overall outcomes. And this one paper showed about having one to four drinks of wine per week reduced the risk of cardiovascular uh, uh, death. But more than that leads to higher rates of death for all alcohol beverages. And that said, there's still a lot of other uh, confounding factors. So it's, it's really still a bit up in the air. Yeah, it sounds like the evidence is pretty dubious. Yeah, yeah. I think nutrition studies in general are very hard to do and very hard to control for, right? What's clear, you know, heavy drinking, really not great for your health. If you do drink, and I want to have a very harm reduction perspective here, I I, I still drink regularly. Um, And you can drink on the spectrum of substance use health. You can can drink on the side of the spectrum that is... um, not good for your health necessarily, but better, right? So make sure it's in moderation. A glass of wine, a beer, a cocktail now and again, probably not a huge issue if you don't have any underlying health conditions or a history of alcohol-associated illnesses. But you, or if someone you know or love is struggling with their alcohol use, please know there's nothing to be ashamed of. 
absolutely nothing. And there are tons of great folks and organizations out there that can support you. And we'll be putting some of these links in our um, on our podcast website. Uh, I want to, again, shout out the incredible organization, the Community Addiction Peer Support Association uh, here in Ottawa. And then there's also Breaking Free Online uh, that are great organizations that provide lots of spectacular resources, completely stigma-free uh, information out there and support. All right. Well, that's great. And this episode is brought to you by MAD, Minding the Brain Listeners Against Drunk Driving. <laughs> Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. <laughs>